I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every single day. These are the stories of the killers and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. My name is Paul Vivian Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss the reality behind crime on the continent is Jared Lavaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Hello, Gerard. Hello, Paul. How are you doing? Fine, yourself. So, Jared, I have been seeing you on the television lately discussing a particular case that is happening as we speak. It's unfolding. So today we have the, I mean, I won't call it the pleasure, but we have the opportunity to discuss a case which is ongoing, um, the, a killer that's been um, killing homeless people in Pretoria. Gerard, tell us a, give us a little bit of an introduction to uh, the case. Where, where do we stand right now? Yeah, so essentially what you've been hearing about in the media is that over a period, I think it was about two weeks in, uh, in mid-June, early June uh, 2019, uh, homeless people started be- being found dead, murdered in Pretoria. Um, now, for those of you that don't know Pretoria, there's a little sort of nice park called Magnolia Dell, which is quite close to Pretoria Boys High School, uh, Pretoria Girls High School, not far from Loftus Rugby Stadium. Um, so it's in a very decent area called New Muckleneck. So um, some bodies were found there. And then if you go down that road, it used to be called Charles Street. I think it's now called Justice Muhammad. As it goes more towards into town, um, about a couple of k's down, if that far, they found more bodies. Uh, so a small geographical area, uh, all men, all middle-aged, as they've been reporting, all black ma- males, um, and all homeless people um, that have been found dead in this period of time. Let's go right back to the beginning, and let's talk about something that we've covered in previous episodes. But just as a reminder and just to contextualize, how do we define a serial killer again? What is a serial killer? Yeah. So again, if you start to do a little bit of a literature search, you'll find lots of different definitions in textbooks. Some of them are great. Some of them are pretty stupid. But 2005, the FBI decided to hold a symposium to try and get some consensus. I mean, you must imagine a whole bunch of professionals from all over the world. It's like herding cats. But they got the, a whole bunch of people together. I was very fortunate enough to be part of that. And they said, let's kind of get some consensus. And the definition that came out of that, and that's not, not to say that everybody now must use that definition, mm-hmm. but kind of the, the consensus one is that once you have two separate murders by the same individual, you start to regard it as a serial. So it's quite a broad definition in that sense. Then you would, of course, have different subtypes. Your Moses Sitole, who raped and killed a woman, would be this sort of sexually motivated. Um, and on the other side of the spectrum would go up to things like your contract killers, hitmen, or women killing their husbands for the insurance money would be on the other side of the spectrum as also a serial killer, and then all the kind of differences in between. So, But really the crux is two separate murders, same person. So um, hopefully we can get into kind of a rough profile of the case. I mean, I know, Gerard, that you do have some discussions, uh, some engagement with some of the guys that are working on the case, but um, just for everyone uh, listening, it is 
very sensitive information. So Gerard is very particular about what he can speak to us about and what he can't speak to us about. But um, certainly, I mean, I think it's a good opportunity to get a, a kind of a good insight as one of these cases are unfolding. And some of the things I also want to understand are, you know, how do these things unfold in the media? What role does mm. the media play? The name. Let's talk about how serial killers get their names. Typically. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this one, Nocturnal Stalker, Nocturnal Prowler, and I wonder if most of our population even knows what those words prowler. actually mean. I had to go look up sometimes some of these fancy def- uh, terms we've given our serial murderers. Um, from a policing point of view, if it's not the, if it's not the media who's given that, that name, <clears throat> um, often we would be very straightforward. I mean, we had a guy killing in the same area a couple of years ago along the railway lines. So he was called the railway killer, not okay. very creative. <laughs> if it's along the highway, it's the highway man. Sure. Uh, if it's the first one in Pretoria, it'll be the Pretoria serial murderer. And then the second one, we have to have stretch our brains a bit more to try and find it. So, you know, from a policing point of view, we don't really necessarily spend a lot of time naming them. <laughs> That's not For really sure. what we're supposed to be doing. But the names tend to be pretty much pretty simplistic. If you have, it's the first one in Pofadr, which is a little tiny town in the northern Cape province. It, I guarantee you, it'll be called the Pofadr serial killer. Sure. Um, so that's really it. And as I said, sometimes the media jumps in. They seem to have been the ones to have dubbed uh, this particular one. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose you're nocturnal. And it is it's, the nocturnal prowler. Isn't yeah, it? so yeah. it's all at night. So again, nocturnal. And yes. pr- how the prowler or stalker? I don't really know how that sure. one um, came into it. So yeah, it's it's often just the media that comes up trying to get attention, and the police were kind of more simplistic. We just name it by who it is. If it's like using an axe, we'll probably call them the axe killer. You know, type sure. of thing. Um, you, I'm, like I say, I mean, you've been. Uh, uh, I bumped into you at ETV recently, and you were just coming out of. Um, being uh, featuring there on the, one of the news shows on uh, on e- on ENCA, how do you engage now with a case um, with a case like this as it's unfolding, no longer being um, a, a cop yourself? Yeah, look, I mean the whole issue around the media and what they call talking heads. There's an actual def- term called talking heads about these people who are always appearing on TV to speak about whatever topic in the news because the media wants us. They want to have that person to give them that soundbite. They want some expert that's going to give commentary. So you can't get away from that. And I mean, for me personally, and I don't do this kind of work anymore. Mm. So for me doing that, when I speak on the TV, it it doesn't bring me business because some people say I'm trying to do it to bring me business. But as I said, I don't, I do something completely different to that. But for me, the concern is, is that the media will find someone to talk to, whether it's some professor of psychology at a university or a criminologist somewhere who will leap at the chance to get in front of a TV for whatever reasons. Mm. But we have to be very careful about what we say. And firstly, I've often, when I've heard other people talking about it, in the South African context at least, they don't know what the hell they're talking about, in my opinion, very often, because they don't have experience. What they know about these is what they've read up. Mm. So that's the first thing. You get incorrect information being told to people, which can have its positive and negative effects. I mean, if you have a person who, uh, a so-called expert who says something that can anger the suspect, how does a suspect show their anger or vent their anger? Mm. By maybe killing another person Mm. uh, or doing something? So that's the first thing. Uh, so, and secondly, we, we sometimes don't want certain things mentioned in the media. And, and again, a person who has not had experience working on these cases, this talking head, might say things that we really would prefer not, that if the suspect is listening, we don't want them to know that that's what we're thinking. So mm. that's why I kind of, in a way, feel some kind of an obligation to, to be the one to speak because I have, at least I know what I'm talking about mm. because I've worked on, as you said, 110 murder series at least and <clears throat> done academic research into it, etc. Mm. Um, but to avoid the bad information going out and also perhaps potentially damaging information going out. Because sure. like I said, they always want the soundbite. They will <laughs> seek out that person uh, to speak to. How do we, how is media training handled within 
kind of be within the confines of these kind of um, special units that are set up to tackle these cases? Well, well that's the thing, because we, we always used to recommend that people who are going to be, they should be designated people in the province or nationally who would talk when it's a serial case. Mm. And that we would give them some kind of a training to let them understand why, for example, in a serial case, we wouldn't mention certain things that we might mention in a single murder case. Mm. Um, because, again, we don't want the suspect to know what we know. We don't want somebody who wants to, not to say copycat, but somebody who wants to mimic the same kind of crime for their own personal benefit, maybe to get rid of their wife, to know exactly what happened on the crime scene, because then they will re- try and kill their wife, recreate that, and let it be perhaps assumed to be part of that series, which, again, we had it, We can discuss that later. We've had that in a few cases. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I don't know nowadays how many of the media people are coming on the training uh, that they are aware. And so ideally what we would normally say is we should get a media person as part of the task team who is briefed as to exactly what they would say. And they don't do a media release until we kind of discussed with them what it, what is in that media release. And if they're going to have a press conference, that we say to them, these are the things we don't want mentioned, these are the things we do want mentioned. And that's the ideal scenario. Um, how much that is happening, uh, I can't say. Is this the kind of case where the, the police would have tried to keep it out of the media up to a point? Do, do you think the, did the police mm. bring the media into this case, or did the media pick up on the story? As far as I understand in this particular case, it was actually the media were the first ones that picked it up. The police would probably probably want to keep it as quiet as long as possible. Sure. There's always a double-edged sword. I mean, you have a responsibility to warn the public if there is a serial murderer out there. Um, at the same time, what you do to prevent yourself becoming the victim is very straightforward. Be vigilant, be aware, don't go with strangers, etc., etc. Um, so it's not like it's some weird tactic that you have to apply because there's an, a nocturnal prowler running around, per se. Yeah. So... I think in this case, particular case, it was the media that, that touched on it that, that made it prominent. So in a, way, in, a, in a sense, it does become a bit ridiculous by the police saying, no, there's no serial, there's no serial. When the media is, every newspaper headline is talking about the serial murderer in Pretoria. And then, of course, people like me are saying, well, there's enough reason to think that it is. Um, and they kind of, no, 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 we don't think it is. It's not one. Now, the difficulty with that is that I don't think the police understand what the public hears. When the, when the, when the police say, no, it's not a serial. We have no information at this point in time to say it's a serial. What the public is hearing is that, oh, my God, these guys aren't treating it as such, which means they're not doing it properly. They're not doing the investigation properly. Um, Instead of saying what they should is, at this point, we're not we're looking into it. We're not 100% yet satisfied that we can call it that. Mm-hmm. But we have the necessary experts involved to guide us, yeah. who are part of a task team that we've put together. So if it should turn out that it is forensically confirmed uh, that yeah. it's a serial, we would not be one step behind. Otherwise, the public is going to think, my goodness, until the day you acknowledge it's a serial, only then are you going to start working on it properly. Yeah. And I don't think the, 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 the SAPS media people realize that's what the public is hearing yeah. when they say there's no evidence to suggest it's a serial. Yeah. And then again, it's more about it affects the confidence the public have in the police as opposed to um, uh, it gives people the peace of mind, yeah. you know, gives people peace of mind. Because that, that then becomes a whole debate and discussion point. Yeah. And, and instead of saying we're not yet convinced, we are looking at it as an option, we've got the right people, then you kind of take away this whole thing of police still deny it's a serial. Because yeah. <laughs> whether it's a serial killer or not, there are a number of cases that have been identified that have happened. And this, yeah. there are these kinds of killings going on regardless of whether yeah. we can say it's the same person you know, and, or not. And whether it's one person killing five or five people killing five victims, yeah. um, it's bad. You've got five dead people in a sudden spike of cases. That needs to be looked into. 
Um, Like I said, with five lone individuals who suddenly magically decide the same time period, the same era, we're going to suddenly all start killing someone, independent of each other or in conjunction with each other. That's yeah. not good. You need and to, I can see how easy it is for misleading information to kind of to, to enter into the fray. Um, you know, for example, I mean, there's an article here on on the IOL website. Pretoria killings have similarities with Joburg's <laughs> first serial killer. And then I started reading this um, article. And from my knowledge, from the knowledge I've acquired predominantly in conversation with you, Gerard, as you start reading through this, this is a man who was who was killing people in Joburg in the 30s. But it was a man killing prostitutes, and it was so immediately you start to see that there are actually no similarities really between um, Joe Berg's first serial killer and this series of killings that are happening in Pretoria. Now that's not necessarily dangerous information, but it, again, it just goes to show that there's maybe a lack of insight, a lack of research at the press. So you've got to yeah. be very careful about what information you give them that they can yeah. f up. So what I've, I saw, I actually just saw the, the the newspaper headline. I think it was on Saturday. It says, um, hunting Joburg's first serial killer. And I thought, I'm thinking, hang on a minute. We've had lots in Joburg. So either this is a highly misinformed <laughs> article or... Was there really? Yeah. And it was this article that you're referring oh, to. I see. And okay. it refers back to this 92. So yeah, I also yeah. opened up that article when I found it online, read it. And I thought, but there is absolutely no similarity except for the fact that they might be both serial murderers. <laughs> exactly. and, and, and there was another article the other day a journalist wrote about why this is not a serial killer. Mm. And he had some really kooky definition of serial murder. And said, see, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, therefore it's not a seal. And again, I posted that in my Twitter feed and I said, you know, this is why journalists should not, yeah. <laughs> not pretend to be profilers and I shouldn't <laughs> pretend to be a journalist. So if you, um, really commenting on stuff that's, uh, that you really don't know anything If about. you are following these stories in the press, then just follow Jared on Twitter and he'll keep you straight as to what's good information and what's bad information. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, at GN Lobeskachny. Okay, there we go. Okay, so follow at GN Lobeskachny. Um so yeah, so we can see that that kind of misinformation can seep into the into the system pretty pretty easily. How how much of a difficulty can the press be? Have you had experiences where they've you know been interfere you know they've interfered in crime scenes etc. You know how much do you have to manage the press practically you know yeah. through the process of these cases? It's difficult. I mean, obviously we have to balance the needs of a, of a free press, which is very important in a democratic open society with um, the balances, the needs of the investigation. So, you know, we've, what our, one of our big concerns is that the press will hunt down these, these attempted victims who survived or family of the victim, and they then want to get information from them, which, again, might be information that we don't actually want released for a strategic reason in the investigation. Mm. Um, and this becomes down to the police not always giving, keeping the families informed. So you might have a really great investigation going on. The family members think nothing's happening. We've not heard anything from the police. The media rock up and they think, here's my opportunity to put pressure by helping give attention in the media to this case. Mm. So often if the police gave the families good regular feedback and said, we don't want you to speak to the media for this particular reason, um, we might prevent that. So the, so the media going out and trying to find info from people, then putting that into the media into the, in the public sphere that might contain information we don't want to mention for yeah. the investigation proof. That's the one concern. Yeah. But also remember when we had the Quarry murder series, which is one of the cases we've discussed in our previous podcasts, where we'd arrested the suspect and there was quite a lot of information leaking out of the task team. And we think we know who might have been the one linking it out. And we get a phone call. Um, oh, first thing, we're about to hold a pointing out. And that's when once we've arrested a suspect and he's kind of confessing to what he's done, we say, listen, would you rather not takes an independent officer who has no involvement 
take that individual to show him where you, everything you want to show them. You know, we don't tell them what they must show, but we say we're showing the person the relevant places where you did everything. Mm. And then we get a, an officer who has no involvement. He takes that individual out to the variant. He will say, for example, to the officer, this is where I met the victim. This is where I left the body. This is where I left the knife. This is where I did this. And you can, corresponds with your information that you've gathered so far. Now, that's something you don't want to interfere with anyway, by any means, because it can jeopardize its admissibility in court. Okay. So in the quarry case, you know, we've just we've got the suspect. You agreed to do this pointing out. We're busy organizing this independent officer to do it because you've got to get an officer. You've got to get a crime scene photographer who wasn't at the crime scene. It's quite a process. Mm-hmm. And then I get a phone call from a friend of mine saying, oh, I hear you. Your suspect's doing a pointing out. And I'm like, when earth did you hear that? And this was a civilian colleague. He said, oh, no, it's all over the radio. So somehow sure. that information. Then yeah. I get other phone calls from people, from journalists, saying, we hear you're doing a pointing out now. We're going to go to the places where the bodies were found. Now, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. If the media are standing there, the old crime scenes with their cameras, because I can guarantee you, although the person's agreeing to do a pointing out now, when it comes to the trial, he's going to say that we threatened him or and forced him to do the pointing out under yeah. torture, etc. And his lawyer will say, well, obviously he pointed that place out because that's where the journalists were all standing. Yes, yes, yes. So in that case, I actually said to say to this journalist, we're busy with the pointing out. That can jeopardize the admissibility of the evidence. If we find you there, we will arrest you okay. for, for, for obstruction of justice. Okay. And we actually had to get the team members to, out to the various scenes where we thought he would probably point out okay. to check if there's any media there to clear them away for that process. Okay. So that's really sometimes the invasiveness that can actually be damaging to evidence. Yeah. Um, do do you find then that you will have a select group of journalists that you grow establish a relationship with and you grow to trust that that will become your first point of call when you want to get information out to the public? Um, yeah, look, I mean, technically you're not supposed to favor any journalists sure. um, for, for obviously good reasons. And normally any kind of information we would want to go out, have go out would go out via the official spokesperson. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, but having said that, there are definitely journalists who, who have assisted us with other cases like the Hillbrow birthday rapists, which we discussed, where sure. we actually targeted ones where we, where we did have a faith and trust that they would release the information in a way we wanted to. Sure. Um, and I mean... I always say to people that my goal was to catch this guy as soon as possible, to prevent further loss of life and to get justice for the victims. I am prepared to bend, not break rules or laws, obviously not break laws, but to bend like the police rules about if we would want some information mentioned. Yeah. I would, if I thought that that's going to help us catch this guy sooner, I, I would bend a rule to, yeah. to achieve that. Again, but not breaking laws, but perhaps breaking SAPS's rules okay. to get to that point. Yeah. So here's my pitch to you, Jared, and I've made this pitch to you before, and I, do, I think we should discuss it because I'm, I'm curious... I'm curious just to unpack it. There's 10 to 15 serial killers active in South Africa at any one time, Mm. you tell me. So why don't we make the show about tracking down and finding a serial killer? Why couldn't we? Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, Look, uh, I've always said I'm happy to assist the police in in any way. Uh, If they needed my assistance, I don't think they necessarily do. Mm. But I think the difficulty is you're always going to have to have access to information that we won't have access to. Forensic information, forensic capabilities, which makes it difficult, which is why private investigators have have never really played a role in any serial murder case. Okay. Um, And that's the challenge. Um, Okay. But I think what's nice is to comment like we're doing now, sure. to comment on an active case. Definitely. You know, it's so close by. It's Pretoria, which is very close to where we live. I used to live there. Um, I know the area actually where these crimes have occurred, etc. So it's very nice to perhaps... No, know, definitely. You know, and I think what's going to be nice over the, over the following weeks is to, is to keep an eye on the case and see how it unfolds out, see what happens. Because yeah. there is, they have arrested somebody yeah. um, 
whether or not the, they haven't spoken about whether that is linked to these cases or not. But we know that there's somebody in custody that has apparently been held responsible for killing a homeless person. Mm-hmm. That's as much as I know anyway. Do you know any yeah. more than that? So what I've heard, and again, we're just talking about what we've heard in the media, which is not always yes, accurate yes, information, yes. Um, is, is it was an, apparently an attempted murder in Feb of okay, this year, attempted, I think. Okay. Um, and he had been arrested, appeared in court, and the, the National Prosecuting Authority withdrew the charges because there was not enough evidence against him. And that's very normal. I mean, we can't blame them for doing that if they felt that's the right decision for that case. Um, I think they've now, I don't know whether he's done anything since then that he's been rearrested for or if they've rearrested him on that same count. Okay. But what's important is definitely, you'd, and, and as far as I know, he actually lived in that particular area where these crime scenes are now, the current murders. Okay. So definitely that's a fantastic suspect that you have to look into thoroughly to see if he is possibly the same. So you'll be a fool to not account. So when the media spokesperson from the MPA said, there's nothing in this docket that links him to the murders, yes, she's correct, because that's just the assault docket. Yes. And that's normal procedure. Whatever you arrest the person for then, keep him on that charge. Yes. Invest, and in the meantime, look to see if there's anything physically or, or, or forensic evidence or confession that can link him to the other cases. Sure. So that's not, I don't chastise them for that. That's the proper way to do it. Because the last thing you want to do is, yeah, we've arrested the nocturnal prowler because we think he's responsible for the other ones. Of and you have more Murders yeah. happening while he's in custody. You look like a bunch of plonkers, of course. To put it politely. Yeah. So definitely now what they'll have to do is start going through his clothing, check forensically if there's any of the victim's blood. I mean, again, we can assume he's a homeless person himself, the suspect, so he's not going to have thousands of changes of clothes. He's not going to perhaps be cleaning his clothes as often. So hopefully there is some blood that he might not have noticed on the clothing because uh, it actually soaks very quickly into clothing, specifically dark clothing. You can't okay. see blood stains. That, and you just need a minuscule drop that can match any one of these victims. And that will be enough reason to yeah. at least charge him on that and probably then through linkage analysis evidence, testimony, based on the modus operandi and other similarities, would probably then charge him on all five of the cases. Okay. We'll get into a little bit of um, the modus operandi as we understand it and maybe just kind of a, 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 an overview type of profile of, of this killer. Look at his... Um, a victim type as well. Um, the one thing I wanted to do to wrap up the media conversation is how much would you assume this guy exposes himself to media related mm. to his killings? Yeah, so that's not uncommon. We, we do find serial murderers would listen to the news to try and hear about what's being said, which is, again, why we don't want certain info mentioned. Uh, read newspapers. Uh, we have some that have kept newspaper clippings of their crimes. That's uh, not uncommon. Um, so you always have to assume that they are going to hear mm. what's in the media. Um, sure. and, and nowadays, I mean, it gets, you know, not worse, but worse than inverted commas. There's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's Facebook. There's all other means by which people can get access to this information. Um, so we have to assume that. It's just better to assume it rather than not. Um, if they have access to the newspapers, they will definitely be reading them. If they have access to radio, they'll be listening to it to see what's going on. Sure. Um, I would say it's, it's almost without a doubt. Please search Profiler Africa on YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube page. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on Spotify. Simply search Profiler. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa. And please do join our Facebook group.
In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I'm Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious to reveal the truth behind serious crime on the continent. Joining me is Jared Lobeskakny, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section. Um, and he is, of course, the profiler. And talking about the profiler and profiles, let's talk a little bit about a profile of the nocturnal prowler, um, the serial killer who is currently active in the Pretoria area, who we've been discussing for this episode. Um, what do we know of his modus operandi for a start? Yeah, so what's been reported in the media, it is that the victims are attacked in the very early hours in the morning, sort of say 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, while they're asleep. There's no interaction leading up to the to the actual assault upon the person. And they are then suddenly viciously attacked, literally some of the wording said like, while they were in their sleeping bags uh, and left for dead at the scene. Nothing taken. So some victims have had phones. Some people have had money with them. So it was an attempt to rummage through their belongings to steal anything and the person flees. He's apparently wearing a balaclava in the cases where people have been able to report mm-hmm. um, on what they saw happening. Um, and it's all men, like I said, homeless people living in that particular geographical area. Um, and homeless people just are not a very common victimology. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the homeless kind of communities around the cities. Because, I mean, we, you know, we're here in the kind of Auckland Park, Melville area. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a number of homeless people that live on the strip here on Main Road. It seemed, I mean, from what I know of my interactions with them, I've had my, my dog has run out of the house a few times, and the one mm. time a bunch of these guys found him. And they seem to be a tight-knit community. I mean, they, they kind of know one another. Um, they kind of watch out for one another. So, uh, you know, how much information would you expect to be able to garner from within the community about these mm. guys? Because surely they're on high alert and kind of have very kind of um, an engaged presence in mm. that area right now. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I was being interviewed on a radio station recently, and they had two homeless people from that particular area. And the, these guys were adamant that the offenders are policemen, or the offender or the offenders are policemen that are killing them because they're permanently harassed okay. by the police, um, beaten up, uh, moved around, kicked around, etc., etc. And they are adamant. Now, but what's interesting is if you speak to, you know, sort of middle-class people who live in the general area, they'll probably say, or they have been saying, well, this is probably some homeowner whose house was broken into by these guys and he's seeking revenge. So everybody has their their perhaps projection of who they would like it to be, subconsciously or unconsciously, yeah, based on based their, on their bias. relationship towards yeah, this type of victimology, sure. which is exactly probably what the suspect is doing. He has some kind of relationship to this victimology. Yes. It might have been a personal interaction with the homeless person or might just be seeing them as a, a group of people in society who should be removed. And that's why he's targeting them. So it's, it's almost like seeing everybody's own projections Absolutely. of their own inner thoughts and feelings onto yeah. who they feel it could be. So how do you as a profiler kind of strip yourself of that kind of subjectivity? Yeah. So what we do is we look at the behavioral stuff. So we will say, what has been done here? You know, was there a fight? Was there a sexual element? Was there an element of torture? Um, and that kind of, we, we start to build our profiling, making reverse deductions on what we see. Mm. Um, so again, I mean, you can have lots of hypotheses. I mean, I've had, as it's just those two that I mentioned now, it's the police, it's a, a homeowner in the area, it's this, it's that, it's right-wing racists who are killing these kids, or these, these, um, these homeless people, because we did have the water clue four many years ago, those high school kids who killed in one night, assaulted one homeless person, and then assaulted and killed another one. Okay. So that's popped up as one option, is that, you know, racist people, racist attacks. Sure. Um, 
you, you can have hundreds of possibilities. Yeah. So, you know, what we rather say is let's boil it down to what we can see in front of us, which means that what are we seeing at the crime scene? What are we seeing about the victimology consistency? And then work it back from there. And, and again, we don't ultimately know what the motive is unless this guy's sure. going to tell us. And even then, is what he telling us the real reason why this is happening? Oh, and I'm not saying he's, that he might be lying, but this guy is going to try and find some explanation for himself why he's doing this. Yeah, he doesn't necessarily yeah. understand this himself. And, and this is what I'm learning more and more about these kinds of kind of psycho, psychopathic, sociopathic personalities is that, you know, to assume that these people are, like you've said, the Hannibal Lecter type who are, have total, complete self-awareness and are in mm. total control of their psychopathy is, is, is totally atypical. It's not yeah. typical at all, necessarily. Yeah, I mean, and, and look at Moses Tolle, you know, who raped and killed all those women. And he just said, well, women treated me badly from the day I was born. Yeah. You know, they, they lied, they this, they that, etc. Well, you know, I can know a lot of guys who, have been, no, exactly. who feel that women have treated them badly over the years. They're not hurting women. They're not rejecting women. They're not killing women. Yeah. So even that, is that really the explanation? Because if that was, I promise you we'd have a lot more serial murderers if yeah. that made people become serial murderers. So that's why even your own explanation doesn't necessarily explain why For we sure. have this happening. So we kind of decided in the police, you know what, beyond... What's the obvious, maybe, what's clearly in front of us? We're not going to spend too much time speculating about murder, a motive, sorry. And we're going to rather just focus on catching the guy, then we can ask him and maybe get some better answers to why he chose this particular victimology. Yeah. So it's often becomes the academic debate that, of course, logically, that, that's thrown around the media. Um, but for policing, you know, we just want to catch this guy as soon as mm. possible. And, and the profile is, is extremely dependent on information at yeah. the end of the day. The more information you have, the more accurate a profile you can build. So right now, you not being exposed to the finer detail of the case as a profiler, it means that you're not able to, yeah. to paint a, a, I mean, an accurate profile of to, to streamline this profile as, as you yeah. would so, have when you were the active ATSAP. So what I could do is I could say, well, you know, we did this research many years ago with the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which was published in, in the Journal of Investigative Psychology and Offender Profiling, which says the average age when our South African serial murderers start their first murder is the age of 29. Okay. Now, the next question is, are these five murders the first five? Sure. Or did he commit a murder five years ago? Well, then, yeah, twenty-nine-year-olds. Has he just moved here from yeah. Cape Town? So he would been. now be thirty-four. So yeah. that's you know how helpful that is if we don't know if this is the very first murder. Yes. Um, that he's probably has you know a, a primary school level education. Okay, how, how helpful is that? Yeah. He's probably black because mostly in South Africa it's, it's going to be black on black. How yeah. helpful is that? Yeah. So again, the profile doesn't always help us unless we're narrowing down a big sub-suspect pool. Yeah. Like if you had 100, if 100 different names have popped up through various sources saying, I think it's this guy, I think it's that guy, how do we prioritize those 100? Yes. Uh, then you say, right, profile says probably this age, probably this, probably this, to just put them in some kind of exactly. assorted just order that we start with yeah. logically, yeah. this one, and then move down this sort of category. So you're minimizing, so you're, you're heightening the odds that you'll have luck early on. Quick, yeah. Right. Whereas in reality in South Africa, like I said before, I think we know the first one or two names that we come up with through our investigation tends to be the suspect. Sure. I want to get to the geography of it because geography seems to be a major thing in South Africa yeah. is that your typical serial killer is not sophisticated sophisticated enough to go to to want to to travel very far to commit their crimes but um let's talk a bit more about the pro the, the homeless ma males mm. i mean i would assume that that means that there's not a sexual component yeah well n not from the crime scene behavior 
um, do we know if this guy got an erection while he's killing them? Okay. We wouldn't know. Did he go home and masturbate? We wouldn't know until we catch him, and hopefully he tells us. Okay. Then, retrospectively, we would say, well, actually, yes, this is a sexual murder, sure. but there's no elements of it visible on the crime scene. Sure. So I wouldn't yet go for that option, um, although most of our serial murderers are sexually motivated, sure. but they're also usually killing women and raping them, and there's yes, semen, yes, and other yes. evidence of that, that they've left them naked. Yeah. So at this point, nothing from the crime scene that says to us this is a sexually motivated murder, so we wouldn't go into that classification unless, like I said, he told us that there was some sexual element mm. afterwards, then we would reclassify yeah. it as a sexually motivated murder. When building the profile, let's say there were a sexual component, mm. males being killed, would you then assume that this was a homosexual male? Um, if there's a sexual element to it, you'd, 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 yes, I think that's a very okay. logical point to start with. I mean, okay. if you have sex between two men, sure. it's a fairly good chance you're going to be home. Is it more likely or not that you're going to be home gay or not, or at least bisexual? Yeah. So I think it's a good starting point, which again, as we always say with anything, our, our hypotheses are always up until we get something proven to the contrary. Yes. Um, and we have had actually males murdered, actually in that very same, some males in that same park, um, left naked, um, there was semen, and then also some more bodies found near the Pretoria Zoo um, okay. in 2005, and that was, surprise, surprise, the railway killer, okay. um, who was then later arrested and convicted. Uh, um, I think his name was uh, Chabalala, and he was convicted and sentenced to life in 2015. But at that same Magnolia Dell, we found two bodies, okay. um, which is the same park we'll be finding now. And then, as I said, the other ones. But those victims, the male victims, were all completely naked. Stab wounds in the upper left chest, uh, area about say 15 stab wounds which is a lot and then as I said when the, in quite a few of them there was semen found okay. so it is quite qualitatively yeah. different to what was seen here sure. but again some of those bodies were found in the in exact the same, same area as this one um, what would uh, how would the policing be ramped up in the in the area let's move on to a bit of mm. geography now how would um, and talking about the fact that our serial killers tend to work within a fairly confined mm. space um, what what would the police presence look like in that area now? Would there be undercover operations? Would there be mm. kind of... I know, the, again, you can't go into too much detail, mm. but what would we assume broadly would be happening? Well, probably the responsible thing to do would be to at least have more visible policing in that area, in those areas. Okay. So which means things for anything from police vehicles driving around with their lights on to being statically parked around that particular Magnolia. And Magnolia Dell is not a very big place. It's actually a very tiny park. You can pro- probably walk from one side to the other side in, in three minutes sure. at, okay. at, at a normal okay. pace. It's very tiny. Yeah. So visible policing is probably without a doubt um, should be done and, and I would like to think has been done. And that would be to scare away the suspect. Yeah. Your undercover guys would be if you were hoping he's going to pitch up and try something and your guys are quick enough on the mark to, to save that person's life. For sure. um, there's positives and negatives. I mean, obviously, visible policing can prevent the suspect from coming to the area, which means he might just go to a different area and do it. And depending yeah. on how close by it is, it might influence how long that is perhaps picked up as being part of the same series. Or yeah. will he now target guys who are sleeping alone, which means yeah. you might find that body only five months from now when somebody stumbles across it. So again, there's, it's like releasing something in the media and visible policing. You have to do it because it's a responsible thing to do, but it will probably have a potential impact on the suspect's behavior, which can delay catching him. So it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. Okay. That, that homeless community in the area, would they have been engaged by the police, briefed? Would they know who to contact in case of you know, at short notice, would that kind of information be shared amongst the kind of homeless community? Or would there be a concern that you might actually 
end up speaking with the killer himself, and that could be counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, you never know. I mean, you could very well. I mean, it's very likely. Like we said, we have had a guy who was arrested for an attempted murder in that area who is a homeless person. Yeah. So it is very possible that the suspect is homeless themselves. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yes, which is why you wouldn't be wanting to give out info, too much info to the homeless people, but rather they're saying, you know, we're interested in helping solve this case. Um, will you please, if you have information, please contact this individual mm. that they all know specifically? Because the last thing you want is... And we've seen this in other cases where they go to the police station or stop a van and say, listen, I've got information. The person says, ah, just go to the station to report it. And then the person doesn't because they think, oh, these police don't care. You already have a population of people who don't trust the police, who have been yeah. abused by the police. Yeah. So you're really going to have to do a lot of ass kissing, to put it very politely, by preferably not someone from that police station, probably not someone in a uniform, going up to these guys and saying, I am the individual contact me only and I guarantee you I will make sure this information gets to the right people because also you don't want it to be filtered incorrectly so you know he tells it to a guy driving a van who at the end of his shift goes and tells somebody and then it's that broken telephone and the message changed then it doesn't get to the right people Um, so you really want to have one contact person that's why when I think back to my colleague uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jan DeLonga who's still at the unit and who I believe is assisting with this particular case, he investigated a series of sex worker murders in the early 2000s, late 1999. And for example, he called a whole town hall meeting with these ladies that, and said, I am the investigating officer, handed out thousands of his business cards to or hundreds of these business cards to all the people who were in attendance saying, if you see anything, if you hear anything, phone me. <clears throat> now, in that particular case, what happened was one of the victims who was at that meeting later, later becomes a victim of that particular uh, serial murderer, and Yanni's business card was found rolled up and inserted into the victim's vagina. But the, <laughs> that's not wow. the point I'm trying to make. The yeah. point I'm trying to make is you need someone to get these people together and say, listen, contact one person, and then you kind of know that you have the best chance of getting that information through to the right people and hopefully that these people will actually take that effort to contact. Sure. That bit of information just took my breath away. After the break, let's talk a little bit about um, the, the structure of the kind of investigation and, and, and what that looks like now. Um, again, so stuff that we've discussed, but I think I just want people to understand, like structurally now, how the police address this. You know, now that we have kind of decentralized the, a lot of the specialist units and what have you. Mm. Again, search for us on YouTube, Profiler Africa. Please subscribe to our page on YouTube. And the podcast is available on iTunes, um, on SoundCloud, and on Spotify. Our Instagram or Twitter handles are at Profiler Africa. And please do join our Facebook group. journalist curious to reveal the story behind serious crime on the continent joined as always by Jared Labaskakni former head of SAP's investigative psychology section and our uh, resident profiler we've been talking about the nocturnal prowler case of course which has been uh, all over the media in the past weeks Um, homeless bodies homeless men being killed in Pretoria let's talk a little bit about now um, just the, the the structure of the investigation so that um, people understand what different teams would be active on the case as we speak. Yeah, so you'll probably find that um, 
a police station in South Africa probably couldn't assign a task team of detectives to be responsible for this. It would take up too many resources. The smaller the station, you know, you, you'll have less detectives. Mm. And usually the average police station only has, you know, between one and four detectives who is solely responsible for dealing with unnatural death investigations, which means car accidents, suicides, murders, inquest dockets, etc. So you probably couldn't scrape together. If you scraped together a task team of five or six people, it would probably mean their whole capacity of, of homicide or unnatural death investigators and plus a few more detectives. And no police station can really do that mm. and let these people only deal with those cases for the next months, if that's yeah. what it takes. Because just remind us now, when you joined SAPS, it was structured differently. There was a central serious crimes unit yeah. that would, this case would have been identified, it immediately goes there. Mm. Here now, we're in a different scenario. So just remind us yeah. of how things have changed. So up until 2006, SAPS had what they called serious and violent crime units. Mm. <clears throat> so Pretoria had one. So it covered all of the, say, 20s or so police stations in the Pretoria jurisdiction area would have all their serious cases. There's a particular mandate. So these cases would be immediately given over to the Serious and Violent Crime Unit for the Pretoria area. And that's what would have happened here, that these cases would be dealt with by the SVC unit. And in that unit, we would always have a couple of people who've been trained on the old serial murder training course called the Psychologically Motivated Crimes course. And then, of course, we would augment that. You would probably pull one or two people from the local police station into this task team and form, I mean, we're talking about only five or six people that have mm. to be on this task team. We're not talking about hundreds of people. Mm. And that sort of would have happened pre-2006 before Jackie Salibi shut down all space units and SAPs and mm. task teams. Um, and that actually happened while we were busy with the Quarry serial murder case that we've, we've discussed previously on this podcast series. Um, so that would have happened. But now we don't have that. Those, the, the SVC units do not exist in South mm. Africa, and there's nothing that's replaced it. The closest you might get is at a provincial level. You have a provincial investigation unit. So now when it says Gauteng Commissioner of Police, Lieutenant General Elias Mawela, has instructed a high-level task team to prioritize the investigation, what does that practically mean? I have no idea what they mean by high level. I mean, do you mean it's going to be a bunch of generals? <laughs> okay. Um, it could probably involve some people from the, from the provincial investigation unit. Uh, which I think is based in Johannesburg, that should definitely involve people from the local police station because they know that area. Uh, they might have informers or know the people in the community, etc. And like I said, should then involve people from my old unit to form this, this task team of people. And the last thing we want, and I've said this countless times on the interviews, the last thing we want is this task team to be headed up by a general. I mean, I want to cringe when I read or hear you know, high-profile murder, general so-and-so has been appointed to lead the task team. I want to just mm. die. Because these people are generally politicians, as opposed <laughs> yeah, to... Yeah, I mean, think about it. If you're a general, it means you've worked your way up from a constable up to the ranks. When mm. last did you actually do an investigation? Yeah, exactly. Were you actually a good investigator? Do you know anything about serial murder investigations? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, firstly, we have, some, we have no idea whether they've actually got good investigation <laughs> skills. And you can sure. often sometimes wonder... If you're interested in getting up into the, and you say it's politics yeah. uh, on that sort of level of policing, you know, how, yeah. how did you get there? I mean, like I said, I, the good detectives I know don't become generals. I mean, Pete Bellafield wasn't a general. Yeah. So They're too you know, busy you have to have being a certain, detectives. Yeah, certain level of arse creeping <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and interest to become a manager of that, of that sort well, of Well, you have to aspire to a certain, you know, certain, a certain career path within yeah. SAPS, so which first, moves you away from investigation and more to management. Surely. And secondly, aren't you supposed to be doing your general stuff? You know, <laughs> sure. attending meetings, uh, giving strategic guidance to the yeah, organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got the time to devote for the next few months to being daily? Because you would have to be there daily involved in this investigation. Yeah. But more importantly for me, which is a concern, is what I would see 
is that A, generals love to read newspapers, see what the media is saying, and then tasking detectives to go follow up that aspect. Okay. So you take them away from following leads that they've got from the investigation, and they run off following things that they know is a lot of bullshit, but the general told them to do it. And you also, if you've got a general involved in your tasking, you kill off any critical mm-hmm. commentary. Nobody is going to say to a general, that's a stupid idea, sir. I mean, because you're all thinking about your own careers and futures. Mm-hmm. So a constable is not going to tell a general no, that's wrong. Not. Whereas if you have a task team of people, you know, some maybe constable, sergeants, captain, lieutenants, etc., you know, there's more likelihood, specifically if you know how to run these task teams, that you're going to be inclusive of everybody's thoughts and opinions when yeah. you make your final decision. And respect that this constable might be a constable, which is the lowest rank in the police, but he might have 10 years homicide experience. Exactly. He can have really great ideas and information. He Maybe he's from that area, so he also understands the local nuances of that area better. Um, but you bring a general in and people stop thinking. And sometimes I've often noticed really intelligent people become generals and start to say really dumb things. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder, is it, you know, do their brains turn to mush? And I know a lot it's of generals like, are going to hate me. <laughs> it's, the, it's the Donald Trump approach to governing, isn't it? You watch the news and then you make decisions about policy. Mm. Um, uh, uh, who, who gives you com- – so who, who do you know that's on this team that – it kind of gives you confidence that there's some solid experience looking mm-hmm. at this case. So I don't know the, the other individuals. I do know that Lieutenant Colonel Jan de Lange has been consulting on okay. this case. And I, again, I didn't, I didn't want to question him about exactly what's going on. Yeah. You know, I don't ever want him to be accused of, of, of leaking information out, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so I just do know that he is involved in, in the investigation. Sure. Um, and again, he's got, I mean, probably by this time, more experience with murder series than I had when I left SAFs. Sure. Um, hopefully they'll get, you know, Elmery and Andrew and Joyce and the other guys who are really, really good investigators to assist. But as I said, I don't want to scratch around too much because I want to respect that it's, it's there. Yeah, and, and what, do, what kind of issues do you have to navigate now being kind of outside of, outside of SAPS when you do engage with these guys? What kind of sensitivities do you have to consider? Yeah, um, so obviously, I mean, I would never rev- – if I was consulting on a case, I, I probably wouldn't be speaking in the media. That's the first thing sure. because okay. I, I would never want the investigators to think Gerard's doing a whole bunch of interviews. I'm scared if we tell him this, is he going to be saying this on the radio, yeah, which is yeah. it's a fair fear for these guys to have. So if I was involved, I, I would not be doing any interviews. We wouldn't be talking we about it We would not right be talking now. about it okay. um, so that there was never any concerns on either side that I am going to influence negatively you know, um, what, what's happening. Okay. Okay, so let's – Talk about what are the next steps then the police would be taking now and what would be the, the way forward and what do we anticipate seeing in the media over the, mm-hmm. over the next weeks? So definitely like we spoke about just now, they've arrested a guy in connection with an attempted murder. Homeless person, same area, the suspect is a homeless person. A great suspect, but you never put all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they, and I would assume what they're still doing is making sure, following up all their investigative leads anyway, because you still have to gather all the evidence for court. So you can't stop doing what you were doing because you've got one person. Because yeah. when it turns out that it's not that one person, you might be now two or three weeks behind. Yeah. So you always continue pushing and pushing and pushing, chasing up your exhibits, following up information, following up any leads, speaking to homeless people ongoing, Obviously, if there's another case you want to know about, it, still looking for old cases. I mean, for example, if a murder had, of a homeless person had occurred in January, that wouldn't have gotten anybody's attention. Because when do you hear about, have you ever heard of a single homeless person being murdered, being reported in the newspapers? No. Mm. So now you want to go retrospectively back and look for old cases of murders in the surrounding areas also. You want to throw the net wide. Mm-hmm. But also, like we saw now, attempted murders. Uh, for example, maybe the, the suspect and the victim fought, fought a lot and the suspect ran away. If that, police, if that homeless person went to the police, that might be just recorded as an attempted robbery or an assault, assault GBH, an attempted assault. 
Um, so you want to go look for those dockets, but also by hopefully building up faith and trust in the community, getting these people who didn't go to the police because they thought, well, what are the police going to do? I'm a homeless person. You know, they don't give a damn. Um, They're blaming the police you potentially. You want those non-reporters, which we get all the time in serial rape cases. Mm. People don't go to the police, and then they hear there's a serial active, and they come forward. Yeah. Getting those ones because they could have incredibly valuable information about who this person might be. Yeah. Um, so definitely following up on those because you definitely would want to charge this person on everything he's done in the mm. past, not just the current cases. Um, in terms of this actual suspect, without a doubt, you're going to follow up forensically, testing his clothes, looking for weapons, any kind of thing where you might have this, the vic- some of the victim's blood on items belonging to this particular guy, um, and then um, following up to see if that forensically links to any of your other uh, cases. Of, of course, properly interviewing the suspect, hopefully by people who have been guided by my, my other colleagues who have serial murder experience mm. to know the best way to interview this person mm. that maybe you can get them to confess if you approach them properly. If you just get a stand, stock standard detective to go in there and interview, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. Um, just a, a question that popped into my mind. CCTV in these kinds of, I mean, you know, in the cities we're getting more and more CCTV mm. coverage. How much is, is that potentially a factor here that they're looking yeah. at? Well, that can be great, obviously. Um, I believe and I'm talking under correction that in the case Cases closer towards the Unisa side, there was two cameras in that area that weren't working. Okay. And then I think around Magnolia Dell, I don't think there actually is. I'm talking okay. in a correction. I don't think there is. It's more um, resi- it's homes around that area. So it's more residentially. Yeah. So I don't know if there's in that particular area. But it would be fantastic to at least to have a better idea of you know, where did the person come from? Yeah. Where did they go to? Maybe they did pull up in a car around the corner. Um, did they run away? Did they walk away? Did they throw something away, which could be the weapon? Yeah. So definitely that's, I mean, anything that can help capture what happened is, is going to be useful information for us. Okay. Um, okay, well, guys, that's, um, I mean, again, great just to be able to discuss a kind of a case that's ongoing. I do still kind of, I live in hope that one day we're just going to, we're going to lock, we're going to get Gerard in a room with a some of his former detective colleagues and the podcast is going to become the let's find a serial killer show mm. you know let's 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 do our start our own task team <laughs> and i mean i i really miss this stuff you know <laughs> you know i, I okay. really miss this stuff you know but it's, it's pretoria my old hometown i know that area very well because i've worked on serial murder cases in that very same area i went to school at pretoria boys high which is right literally meters away from magnolia del yeah. park um and so I, I really, it really would have been great to be involved. If I was back in the police, I really would have. This would have been an exciting case, case to work on. It's literally, I don't have to travel to some far-flung part of the country to assist. Yeah. I can wake up, drive closer <laughs> than I would have used to drive to work to get to this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, so it is exciting. And I really hope my colleagues, uh, they have a great success with this. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening once again. This has been Profiler. Uh, you can catch us on uh, YouTube, of course. Just simply search Profiler Africa. We're also available on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on Spotify. Our uh, handle is at Profiler Africa. Um, please join us, uh, join the group on Instagram um, and uh, join us on Facebook as well. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. And- and pleasant dreams. Mm-hmm.